Our verse this morning is found in the Pew Bibles, page 513 and 514, Psalms 31, verse 1 through 4, 15 and 16. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Lamentations. It's found in your pew Bible on page 759. The book of Lamentations was written by someone who had just experienced the total destruction of Jerusalem. It's structured as a series of five poems. If we were reading it in the original Hebrew, you would see that each verse in the poem, each stanza, begins with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So each of the chapters, with the exception of chapter 3, has exactly 22 verses because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. In chapter 3, where we'll be reading from today, every three verses, each of those three verses clustered together in a stanza begins with the letter A or B or D and so on in the Hebrew alphabet. So this morning, reading from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 and 19 through 24. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore... I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Our New Testament reading comes from 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 8. In the Pew Bible, page 1124. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 
They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Our gospel reading this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66, found on page 920 in the Pew Bible. The Burial of Jesus. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there across from the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days, I will arise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception would be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I see so many faces today, and I hope that you'll take the extra time at Potluck or on your way out to say hi this afternoon. Um, some of you are here, and I haven't seen you in so long, and it's so great that you are with us today. So welcome back. Always wonderful to be together in the house of the Lord, especially when Peter gets his summer cut. an extra special time. And uh, Richard, you look remarkably good today. I don't know, I don't know what happened. Who, who put the suit to you? Good work, uh, everybody. And uh, Lee, you must be almost as old as I am, my friend, if you remember that song. And nicely done. I remember that. That was a very popular song when I was in high school. I don't know if you can remember. How many of you remember back to those days? Great. That's the best response I've had in a long time of any of my questions. So I guess from now on we need to play the oldies game. Uh, We'll get more feedback maybe. Yeah, no. Terrific. It's this time of year when we have a unique opportunity. The unique opportunity is to drink in deeply what it is that we have been blessed with, what it is that we've inherited. And I'm fiddling with my microphone box because it's come off of its clip. I broke my other one earlier, so we're off to a great start. Um, 
The Lamentations text we read today is, is pretty rough, if you read it. And, and I'm going to get to it in just a second. Pretty rough. And it's tempting to take the view of the one writing and feel like that when life isn't going the way we want it to, God has got his thumb on us somehow. You ever feel that way? I was sharing with somebody the other day and they said, you know, my prayer life is kind of all over the place. I, um, sometimes I'm angry with God and I let him know and I looked at that person and I said, good, he can handle it. And sometimes I have things I'm asking for. I said, good, he answers prayer. Sometimes I have things I'm celebrating and I said, yes, isn't that wonderful? But in Lamentations, there doesn't appear to be anything anywhere worth celebrating ever. Maybe the writer really does think this is the way God is responding to him in a particular moment. Or maybe this is the sort of over-the-top expression that we sometimes say when we're in pain. We say to ourselves, could it get any worse? And I want to guarantee you in almost every single case it could. But we don't think it could. It feels like it's as bad as it could get, right? No? Okay. Um, in fact, my father, when I would hurt myself sometimes, and I'm not commending him for this, but it was effective, used to offer to spank me if I cried too long after hurting some other part of myself on the theory that what he could inflict on my bottom would help me forget whatever other injury I was carrying on about. It can get worse, is what he was trying to say, I think. It can get worse. So um, that is uh, a reality all of us face. But let's turn to Lamentations. And instead of looking at ourselves in, in the description, let's look at the Son of God uh, in the description. Lamentations, I have a new Bible, and it's a little trickier to turn to than it used to be because I'm not as broken in on this one, but uh, let, let's look at this. You heard the first nine verses eloquently read. Let's read 10 through 18 and see if it gets any better. Like a bear lying in wait. Now there's your worst nightmare, isn't it? Until you get to the next line. Like a lion in hiding. Have you ever seen video clips of a mountain lion carrying like a, uh, I don't know, a Newfoundland over a fence in a single bound? <laughs> I have. Those things are pound for pound the strongest cats on earth, and they're amazing. And the African lion, oh boy, don't even get me started. He dragged me from the path and mangled me, it says, and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became, that's a fatal wound, by the way, isn't it? I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. Ever have that wonderful pre-Pepsid, pre-Melanta experience late at night after pizza night at the church? 
and you are, keep belching this foul stuff, that's gall. I don't have a gall bladder anymore, so it takes a little longer to get all that going. But when you eat the fat that's present in that nice layer of cheese on that pizza, your gallbladder gives a good squeeze and shoves all that it's been storing down this little tube into your body and your intestine. Well, it's actually probably not your intestine. Is it your intestine, Ted? Or It is your intestine, I guess, right. It's below the stomach somewhere. I don't know what that exact segment is called. And um, anyway, injects it in there so that you can finish properly digesting these fats and breaking them down. And this is what it says. He filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. Not very good. He's broken my teeth with gravel. Hey, I got half a cherry pit and some dried cherries the other day. That just about did the job. Yeah. Gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I hoped from the Lord. Does it get any worse? Well, it's a very dark, dark kind of chapter. In 25, it gets a little bit better. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for people to bear the yoke while they are young. Let them sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on them. Let them bury their faces in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let them offer their cheeks to the one who would strike them, and let them be filled with disgrace. For the people are not cast off by the Lord forever, etc. It's a long chapter. I'll spare you the reading of it all. You can do it this afternoon. Let's think for a moment of this passage in relationship to the Son of the living God. For however feel we feel we have been picked on, however we might feel that somehow God's advocacy has left us, somehow God's favor is not with us, somehow we've done something to bring His punishment upon us, For none of us is it like this exactly. And yet for Jesus, it really was. No, God didn't literally pierce his heart with arrows. No, Jesus isn't quoted saying these words. But we see in this suffering and in this affliction, the one who suffered and was afflicted for us. In 1 Peter, we get a different kind of counsel. In 1 Peter 4, 1 to 8, which was also just read, we see it turned a different direction. Chapter 3 shows us a subheading, Suffering for Doing Good. And the idea should be plain. And when we get to four, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for 
evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will give, have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray and above all love each other. There's this element of suffering present in this passage that's important too. Those who suffered in the body are done with sin. When we... I I don't think the passage means that we physically discipline ourselves in this way. If it did, we would all need to be the monks who self-flagellate, whip ourselves. It would be a way of disciplining the body to quit thinking of the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. We would end up destroying ourselves and obsessing on the wrong pieces of what it is that we're to focus on. You see, deliverance from sin doesn't come from concentrating on sin. Deliverance from sin comes from concentrating on the deliverer. Does that make sense? So when it talks about this, when we say we've been crucified with him, it means we've laid down our wills and our lives on the same cross in which he was crucified. Or, to use another analogy, we've picked up our crosses and followed him. We've chosen to make our lives not about the pleasures described that the pagans observe, the kind of living that knows no uh, reasonable bounds, but rather a life of discipline in the sense that it glorifies God by its focus and its purity and its truth. It's not a new concept, not something you're unfamiliar with. It's just something we have a chance to look at again this time of year. And so as we talk about the body and the abuse heaped upon it, we come back again to the cross and to Jesus and what he went through to become sin for us, to take all of that's described there and much, much, much more upon himself, to experience the wrath of God, the discipline, as it were, and make life anew possible for us. A life we must choose, a life that comes to us in much grace. Let's read a little bit about the story again in the Gospel of Matthew. It's also found elsewhere. But I want to hit this before I... uh, Just talk freely. Matthew 27. This passage is describing the burial. The crucifixion is over. Interestingly enough, tying to the Lamentations text, 
Jesus says he thirsted, and immediately, verse 48, this is 27, 48, one of them ran and got a sponge, he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Sated him with gall, so to speak. Matthew 27, 57, if you're there, says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. There weren't just 12. And we can be disciples too. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Now the photo on the front of your bulletin is of the garden tomb in Gethsemane area in Jerusalem. Actually, it's north of the city near Golgotha, what they believe is Golgotha. This is not the tomb of Jesus. This one was probably a third century tomb. But nevertheless, it features this trough where a very large rock would have been rolled in front of this particular tomb. And you can go in and see Christian symbols and see where the body lay. An interesting little thing. We had communion uh, at the garden tomb, very meaningful time together uh, when we went to Israel a couple of years ago. So he was laid in this rock, solid rock thing. Stone was rolled in front of him, but it wasn't enough. Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Not a lot of confidence in their crucifixion did they have. You notice that? He's dead, but that isn't good enough for me. He's dead and he's in a rock tomb and that isn't good enough for me. The stone has been rolled in front of the rock tomb and it isn't good enough for me. The tomb has been sealed and it isn't good enough for me. We better post a guard. Now, I'm literally talking about a stone that's about this high, a foot thick, and this big. And they're worried about a disciple coming and stealing the body. That'd be a scary disciple. Incredible Hulk-type disciple. They're scared that this little band of men is going to somehow pull one over on the world. So they post a garrison. (laughs) And when Christ rises, of course, they fall as dead men. Don't you love that image? Just boom. Forget the salute. You're just going to lay for a while. It's a glorious moment, which we anticipate. And in this story, the laying of him in the tomb by this rich man means that, well, Joseph of Arimathea has come out. 
He's no longer a closeted disciple of Jesus. He's in full view. He's no longer hidden safely wherever he's been hiding. Everyone now knows. It's a new statement of faith and what an interesting time to make it. At a time when the authorities are worried and want to place extra guard. At a time when all of Jesus' friends have left him and abandoned him and he stands alone. At a time when no one wants to be associated for fear that they too will be condemned. Joseph steps forward and asks for the body. I don't know how God picks these moments for us or if we pick them ourselves. But he stepped forward into something great at that moment, and we all know his name to this day. All of this converges into one sort of central theme. The theme of the suffering servant who comes and takes it all from humanity, the combined wrath of God, as it were, laid upon him. There are other views of this. Some who are not comfortable with images of a wrathful God are more comfortable using a ransom motif. The devil is the one who punishes Christ, for Christ becomes the ransom that frees the enslaved human race. That's biblical too, and I love it. But whatever whatever sort of salvation motif we want to celebrate most, we find Christ crushed, bruised, broken, used. We find him resting in the tomb, having invited us to enter his rest in creation, having invited us to enter his rest in redemption, and inviting us to the rest at the wedding feast of the Lamb yet to come. And after this day will be over and everything is sealed and everything is set and we're all poised to deny the miracle, he bursts forth and nothing can stop him. And he's no longer one who comes to be abused or trodden down or to take upon himself the punishment due us all. He's done that. And he's invited us to participate in that and to experience his resurrection life with him. Tomorrow we get to the resurrection. Today I want us to take it in as deeply as we can. When you read these passages in Lamentations and elsewhere, when you meditate upon the crucifixion story, when you think about the sacrifice of the Son of God, when you think of the ways in which this was orchestrated and planned from the foundation of the world, when you hear stories of self-sacrifice and grace, when you contemplate what sin really is and what it means and what it does, I could give you two or three sermons on sin. Been there, done that. I'll give you an essence, though, 
Sin is more than just an action. It's more than just a thought. It's a state of being. A state of being in constant animosity and rebellion with God. Sin is a choice, yes. It's also a situation. It's also a context. Sin is that which we fall to. And sin is that which we willfully and joyfully engage. And the most insidious thing about it, it is that which separates us from life and abundance and joy and robs us of everything meaningful and destroys us, body and soul, until there's nothing left to save. And it takes from the Creator that precious thing which He gave life to. You, His Son. You, His daughter. We, His children. And so this season, let's just give ourselves to this for a while. It's not fun. It's not celebratory. It's not exciting it's deep it's corporate it's personal but it's time in this day in this hour in this season for us to let it sink deeply in for new life is ours as we take up that cross and follow him New life is ours as he bursts forth from the tomb, despite the guards and the sealed rock. New life is ours, now and in the age to come. New life is ours because we've been ransomed. The devil's been paid. The debt's canceled. We're free. We're free. I'm not a historian. Eric is. You can talk to him afterward. But if we think about the modern context of freedom and the split that occurred in this nation a couple hundred years ago to bring about freedom and the vast numbers of people who suffered and died, perhaps we can draw a quick clue as to the cost of a ransom the cost of making us free. And with that deeply in our hearts, we have new reason to praise God, new reason to be humble, new reason to be thankful, new reason to let go of those who have offended us and those grudges we've held against another, new reason to lay our sins at the foot of the cross, new reason to seek hope and healing, new reason to engage one another in constructive life and love. With new reasons to hope. In point of fact, all is new. For the Son of God was beaten down. The Son of God laid down His life 
the Son of God slept and rested, and the Son of God arose victorious. For you, his son, for you, his daughter, for we, his people. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Amen. Amen.